Hey, hey, it is Friday, May 18th, and it has been a long time since we checked in on each other and like what we've been into. So what have you been into lately? Many, many things. First off, to build a smooth transition from our last episode, I saw Infinity War a second time, finally. And I must say that it uh, holds up as well or perhaps better than the first time I saw it. The one thing that really came out to me in second viewing was, well, reinforces that the portrayal of Thanos is just awesome. And also just that one of the things that makes this movie and past movies that they've made, but particularly this one because of just everything going on in it, the Russo brothers do such a good job of paying attention to the details and keeping mind, keeping in mind what they're doing the whole time, who's who's there and everyone's got something to do. So examples are like in the big fight scenes in Wakanda, like you can see in the background things happening, right? That like you see heroes doing other cool things, even if they're not at the center of attention right now. Or like things that they would be doing. You see Wanda's red power things going off. You see Black Panther's purple uh, kinetic energy explosions happening. And I think that just like Mm -hmm. makes it feel so full and active that it just like helps with repeat viewings. Because you're like, oh, he's back there doing that thing. I mean, the first example of that is really like the the airport scene in Civil War. But in it's just that on steroids the whole time in Infinity War. Yeah, and it, I mean, it's been a long time since we've talked about comic book movies in the context of kind of capturing what makes comic books great. But one of the great things about comic book action is that you can show so many things on like one big splash panel and all those things are happening simultaneously within the context of the, you know, of what you're reading. But there's that kind of time compression you get with comic books you know where it's like somebody's in the middle of a jump kick but they're saying eight lines of dialogue because that's how comic books work Mm -hmm. and you know that you're you know that it's kind of a weird time compression but it allows you to have these epic battles where everybody's doing something cool and the russo brothers to your point have sort of figured out how to do that on screen without having it be a jumbled mess and that's pretty cool yeah for sure so um be definitely looking forward to watching that over and over again i assume someday on the Disney streaming service, which they've said is going to be significantly cheaper than Netflix, which is strange, but uh, that's good, I guess. I don't know how you get significantly cheaper than $11 a month. I guess $5 a month. I don't know. <laughs> you don't got a lot to go. But so anyway, as far as reading, I finished Pretty Duty Street Station. I don't think we talked about that, did we? Um, uh, Not on the air. <laughs> yeah. So... Uh, I really liked it. I think that it could have used an editor like somewhere along the way. The first half is a little bit of a I mean, I appreciate the world building and and the kind of meandering nature of it in some ways. But I also feel like we still could have accomplished some of the same world building, but still kept a semblance of plot and things going on. But maybe it was necessary in some. I'm not going to get in spoilers. I think it's a book that really you don't want to get spoiled for. I will just say that he is not kind to his characters. (laughs) Nope. 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 Uh, so, but it was it was very interesting, and I'm excited to read on. So, I after that, I've also finished another book. I finished the fourth book in the the Red Rising series, which came out only a couple months ago, called Iron Gold. It is sort of like the first book in the next trilogy. The first trilogy was sort of you know self-contained, and this takes place about ten years later. And once again, no spoilers, but it's interesting because the first trilogy was all from one perspective, like one point of view, and in this one, he opens it up to I guess four. 
and they all have very much like Game of Thrones. They all have sort of conflicting opinions and it's not just, you know, different perspectives of our heroes. It's different perspectives of people on different sides and how they view events of the first trilogy and things like that. It's it was, it was really good. I mean, I don't think it's quite as good as the original, the first trilogy, but it also kind of has simultaneously the, a first book in some ways. So there's a lot of buildup, but it's also a fourth book. So it's also a lot of like, you know, coming down from some action, coming up from some action and reestablishing where we are. So I think in the context of a new trilogy, it'll be good. But, you know, kind of left some a lot of dangling things for the end of a book. But mm-hmm. so in the TV world, I today, actually, I finished Altered Carbon finally. Have you watched any of that or heard anything about that? No, no, no. I haven't been watching much TV at all. Sorry to say. Yeah. So I started, this is a slow burn for me. I just, you know, would watch half an episode here, an episode there. Didn't really have a lot of time to watch TV or binge anything. Oh, I do think this would benefit from binging because watching it, you know, an episode and then waiting a couple of weeks and watching that episode, I'm like, wait, who are these people again? It, it kind of suffers from some of that, like, whose name is that? And they're kind of like, the main character's voice is kind of gravelly and mumbly. So it's like, wait, what's he saying? So I had subtitles on sometimes just to keep up. But uh, overall, not the best science fiction TV show ever, but pretty good. I think that there's things that it could have done differently that, you know, I, I, I'm not familiar with the source material. So I've heard there's complaints about adaptation from that. But just from a pure, you know, going in with no expectations, um, you know, the characters are a little bit, they're fine. The acting is fine. The fight scenes are really good. The effects are mm. awesome. It definitely is like, it feels like you're in the Blade Runner universe a lot. Maybe a slightly more futuristic version of Blade Runner universe for sure. I mean, it says it's like a cyberpunk thing. I don't really know what that even means anymore. It just means like neon <laughs> and flying yeah. cars. <laughs> yeah, cyberpunk has become an aesthetic more than anything else, right? Mm-hmm. It's a look. It's a feel as opposed to an actual point of view yeah and part of it feels very pulpy which is fun at times uh i really will say that they really make a cool mythology and the best part of it is that so the main premise sort of the speculative nature of it is that i think it's like i don't know however many years in the future a couple hundred and we've populated planets whatever but the means by which we did that is that someone figured out how to store human consciousness in these little metal discs called stacks that live in the back of your neck and attached to your spinal cord. And if you put that stack in any body or sleeve, as they call it, that's you now. And they really, really lean into exploring the ramifications of this. The, I mean, everything ranging from society and the economy and how you have, you know, a vested elite who don't die. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, can just continue to accumulate wealth and income inequality, but also things like, you know, uh, you know, religious stuff, how... Some people believe that's not okay and they get their stacks coded to not be able to be brought back and to things like gender and, you know, gender fluidity and love and relationships and like, well, you know, this is morbid. But if you got hit by a bus and you got, you know, the only body that Karen could afford for you was a girl, how would she feel about that? It's still you, right? But so lots of really interesting things with like the concept that I think make up for some of the weaker elements of it there's also some it's pretty damn gratuitous i mean if game of thrones bothers you don't watch this because <laughs> probably like that is a i mean there's a naked sword fight scene for like 10 minutes so if that tells you anything um but then there's some familiar faces from other sci-fi things which is nice but uh yeah overall i'd, I'd give it a qualified recommendation just based on there's a lot of sexual violence which is partially the point because it's a lot of you know, I don't know. There's a lot of going on in it, but uh, 
But yeah, it's not for the squeamish for sure. Mm. So for something completely different, I finished just also today the most recent season of Supernatural, season 13. Good God. Which finished this week. And, you know, I got to say, this is probably one of my favorite seasons since like the fifth or seventh or fifth or sixth season, maybe, (laughs) which is nuts to think that a show could like do that. I did like last season a lot, too, but just like last season and I won't spoil anything, but the finale sucked, like really sucked from like a dramatic perspective, but also just from like a a filmmaking perspective. It's like, did they run out of money and then go back to like the (laughs) early 90s? Like what happened here? So it was I was pretty disappointed with that, but because it was like such a good build up and the story was going in an awesome direction and it was just nope. And the uh, yeah, so uh, we'll see where that goes, but renewed for a 14th season. All full steam ahead. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so, but I wanted to talk about a quick funny story I had. So, as you've probably heard, and many sci-fi fans have heard, that sci-fi, this channel sci-fi, has canceled The Expanse. Yeah, I've heard that. Which is, you know, a pretty beloved show at this point, based on some books um, that I haven't read all I'd like to. I watched the first season, all I would like to go rewatch it, I think, and I've heard that it only gets better from there. I really enjoyed it, once again. Effects are great. The story's really interesting. It's cool concepts. And so now they're trying to the creators are trying to shop it around to get someone to pick it up. Um, Netflix has allegedly passed, but everyone's kind of got their eyes on Amazon after they've come out and said, you know, we're really focusing on fantasy and science fiction. Mm -hmm. So on the, you know, science fiction subreddit, they were like, oh, you can write to Amazon via their customer feedback thing and, you know, tell them that you would like them to buy the show or whatever. You know, Hmm. one of those things where it probably doesn't do anything, but. What's the, what's the harm, right? So just just try Jeff dot Bezos at Amazon dot com and see right if now. anybody answers. Now he uses an AOL dot com email. Um, <laughs> no, so but I, I filled out the little form thing. It's just your name and email, and then you know you just write what message it is, and they just route it to the right place. And I kid you not, within four or five minutes, I had a response. I basically just said like, based on your direction of go, you know, focusing on science fiction and fantasy, I think picking up the show that already has this big fan base and whatever would be a good business decision. I speak their language or whatever. <laughs> and I could you not within three or four minutes, I had a response from a human. Hey, Andrew, we really appreciate your feedback. We think the expanse is a really great show too. I personally like, like a lot. We're going to pass this along. We really appreciate your feedback, blah, blah, blah. Like definitely not huh. like you could tell it wasn't wholly computer generated. Yeah. I mean, in my mind, I imagine there's like some shirtless muscular guy with like a whip behind all these people at computers like, respond <laughs> to the queries, respond to them. It's like, because that's about what it sounds like to work at Amazon. But uh, it was really interesting. So I guess props to them or who knows. Yeah. But hopefully it gets picked up. But anyway, other things. I am reading The Scar, which you'll be happy to hear. Yay. How far yeah. in are you? I'm not very far. They're just like getting on the boat and whatever else is going on. So barely getting started, barely, barely scratched the surface. Um, We're watching the second season of Handmaid's Tale, which is as brutal and depressing as the first season, if not more so, but also still really, really good. And one thing I wanted to use as a set as a lead into our topic tonight was Uh we're watching the third season of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which is just posted on Netflix. There'll be a fourth season, which I believe will be the last, which is I don't even think I realized the show was on the CW because it's not really a cw-esque show because there's no like <laughs> vampires or superheroes yeah, no, in it not a bunch of sexy shirtless teens running around at night no and it's like has a lot of really really pointed and like poignant commentary on a lot of different things which is really not mm-hmm. necessarily the cw's like <laughs> strong point or selling <laughs> point <laughs> but 
where this show has gone, especially this season, it really begins to make you, and I've heard that going back and rewatching the first and second season after some of the stuff that happens in the third season, it's it's hard to explain. I don't want to go into, you know, spoilers don't really matter, I guess, but I don't really want to go that direction, but just that it's doing something with comedy and with comedy commentary that I don't think has been done before. Hmm. It is, I mean, it's always had these little jabs and like, for those of you who aren't aware, the show is kind of a musical show. Like there's musical numbers throughout the episode that are mm-hmm. usually really funny and they're short. It's not too much, you know, maybe two or three per episode. Um, and there's a lot of very, very interesting commentary. But then the show takes a really, really dramatic, dark turn and paints the whole previous two seasons, which weren't that different from other shows we might have been used to watching. And sort of says like, oh, no, yeah, all these things this person has done, like, that's not because we live in this fantasy land, like, it's always sunny in Philadelphia or 30 Rock, where our characters are just like lovable goofballs who just do ridiculous things. It's like, no, no, like, we're talking about like mental illness here. And like, you know, where so it's just hmm. like, basically, what would happen if it's always sunny, like, all the things they did actually had ramifications all of a sudden. Yeah, kind of like, kind of like what they tried to do with the ending of Seinfeld, where... <laughs> They get called to task for all the things that we were laughing about and thought they were getting away with. But uh seems like I'll a darker twist on, than that. Yeah, I mean, I'll have to take your word on that one. It is definitely darker. I mean, it's still a funny show and it's still comedy, but it's that weird. It makes you really uncomfortable because you're laughing and you're just like, you're laughing, but your stomach hurts. And you're like, mm, uh, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing anymore with this show. So anyway, it's I mean, everything about it is it's really well made and lots of other good things. So the the talent in it is great. And the, the woman, I'm, I don't know her name behind it. She's like the main character and a producer and whatever else. Uh, and Rachel Bloom. Yes, she is doing a lot of really cool stuff and has a lot of good things to say uh, about a lot of things. So but I think that it's just it's another example of like comedy being unique in the modern age and how different it would look compared to either things we've really been into maybe five years ago or 10 years ago or 20 years ago even. So watch it. Yeah, I uh, we watched I've seen maybe a handful of episodes and I've always enjoyed it. I just I've never been you know able to kind of sit down and watch it. But then again, Karen and I both sitting down and watching the same thing for anything more than half an hour a week is very difficult for us right now. You got a baby on the move. Yes, I do. She is walking and she's got her sixth tooth almost ready to come in, which makes things difficult. Oh, boy. So, uh, But no, no. Uh, but that means I've been watching, you know, most of the things I've been watching are Greg shows and she's been watching Karen shows. And um, that's nice on its own sometimes, too. Sure. So that lead in was because we're going to be talking about comedy tonight, in particular, uh the Simpsons. A certain show, yeah. Yeah, the the comedy show. Um, so this is a weird thing, and, and my thoughts on this aren't fully formed. And um, this episode was my idea. Um, and like I say, my, my thoughts on this aren't fully formed, so forgive me if I ramble. Um, but I think that part of that is because I think America... Our thoughts on The Simpsons aren't fully formed, um, even though this thing has been going on for nearly 30 years and has been one of the most important, you know, television shows of three decades. But we don't really have, I think, culturally a way of talking about The Simpsons in the way that, like, 
we have a way of talking about Star Wars. And, you know, there are critical perspectives on Star Wars and there are opinions about what various things mean. But The Simpsons is just kind of like it's this thing that we all kind of accept as a part of things like it's like oxygen, you know, it's like not really much to say about it. Um, So the question is, why now? Um, so just in the last couple of weeks, The Simpsons passed another milestone uh, with their 636th episode, which now makes them officially the longest running scripted television series. Uh, any way you count it, um, not only have they been on the air for the longest stretch of time, um, but they also have now with this 636th episode, they have per- surpassed the previous record holder, Gunsmoke, apparently, um, which only had 635 episodes. So now they've got, you know, um, they've got both. Great. Wh- why don't they count soap operas in that record? Um, Is it like a different category? It's not considered scripted or something? I don't. I'm just curious. That's so a you good know question, because I would imagine that some of those shows would probably... Yeah, maybe they're counting those in a different category. I don't know. but Yeah, some of those shows started as, like, radio dramas in, like, right. the 30s. So, um, and that we were, I remember I looked at it one time. We went down a rabbit hole with a friend, and we were talking about, like, how many years it would take you to watch all of, like, General Hospital or, you know, I don't know, Days of Our Lives or something like that. They've been on for years and years and years. And they put out episodes every day for, like, you know, that many years. So Right, right. They right. must be a different categories. I've always heard that Gunsmoke record as being, like, the record to beat. Maybe it's a primetime distinction. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, I don't mean to derail, but no. um, So that is so that's part of one of the reasons why I want to talk about The Simpsons now. But we've taking that um, alongside the recent uh, discussion around the character Apu. And this kind of kicked off um, probably about a year ago, maybe a little less. um, The comedian Hari Kondabolu put out his. documentary video essay i'm not really sure how you want to call it um called the problem with a poo talking about how um the character a poo is a is a bad stereotype of indian and south asian people uh that is written by white people and played by a white dude and Hari's point was essentially like, that's kind of fucked up and for uh indian and south asian americans today like when that is you know the only representation that you have like that that sucks. Um, so he kind of put put it out there, and for the most part, um, the response has been pretty positive. The Simpsons, as a show, finally got around to responding to it. Um, actually, in the context of the show, and kind of, kind of told Hurry and everybody else to kind of fuck off, which was weird. And also, the response came essentially from Lisa, which is also a little strange. And then Matt Groening basically accused anyone who has a problem of a poo uh, of pretending to be offended, which is disappointing. But then recently, Hank Azaria, who voices a poo, said he's done some soul searching on it. And of course, you know, when he kind of created the voice for a poo, like, you know, of course, he wasn't trying to hurt or offend or make fun of anyone, but he understands the problematic nature of it. And he said he would be willing to step aside from the role, um, you know, if, uh, if they're, if they were able to find a, uh, South Asian voice actor and, and he's, you know, supported the idea that, um, South Asian people, Indian people should be writing on the show as well. So good on him. But anyway, um, that has, um, Hari's documentary. The problem with the poo is essentially kind of the first time that we, culturally have taken a hard look at this show at all other than 
you know, basically any conversation about The Simpsons starts and ends with, boy, sure went downhill after season nine, huh? And then some, and then the only other side of the debate is, I don't know, there were some good episodes in season 10. Like, that is the extent of the critical conversation about The Simpsons, really, right now, um, until this moment. And it's kind of weird that the show's been on the air for almost 30 years, and just now we're starting to kind of unpack it. Um, so... I want to talk about The Simpsons. You haven't watched The Simpsons in like 10 years though, right? I mean, so let's go through our journeys here, Greg. We always <laughs> like to do that here on this show. So little Andrew used to watch a lot of TV when he was a kid, as we t- discussed previously. Um, Unlike big Andrew who watches no TV now. I mean, just like watched a lot of TV, <laughs> okay. like had a routine, you know, whereas every day I got home from school, pulled the chair, got a whatever snack I was snacking on and put on the TV and it was... You know, <laughs> Batman the Animated Series, then Spider-Man the Animated Series, then The Simpsons, and for like three hours, because it's, I mean, it's been in syndication forever on everything, and then other sort of sitcoms of the time, like Roseanne or Full House or whatever. And so I watched a lot of Simpsons, and my mother was not thrilled that I was watching The Simpsons at a young age. Like, I distinctly remember watching The Simpsons as early as the first grade. Now, looking back, it's like The Simpsons is a pretty damn mild show. Uh, given modern comedies, you sure. know, crassness. Sure. Um, but for, you know, no, no, no one wanted their kid to be Bart, and that was the problem, right? Um, and, you know, but mom wasn't around a lot, so Andrew kind of did what he wanted, and he watched a lot of Simpsons. So I got, I was very into The Simpsons. My friends were all into The Simpsons. It was like a thing, a big thing. I had episode guide books, you know, like season guides that had little trivia about each episode and little Easter eggs and whatever else. I remember playing the Simpsons game. that was like a computer game where you could like walk around Springfield. It was kind of like, like somewhere between a point and click adventure game and like a simulator. Mm-hmm. And I think there was like some plot to it, but I just never figured out what it was. Cause I thought it was actually kind of hard. Yeah. It was more just like a virtual Springfield that you could kind of explore. Right. Right. And I always thought there was like pieces to, like you could see kind of pieces. Like there must be something that like you can trigger to make story happen, but I think it was really, really <laughs> hitting because there wasn't much to it. So they just like didn't want you to find anything. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you could explore classic episode sort of sets and people and things. So um, very into it. And then, you know, it was a big part of like one of the few few things with my dad that we did was like I my parents were divorced. And every other weekend we went to my dad's house and we watched a lot of TV there. But on Sunday nights, you know, and they started doing like Sunday night animated comedy for, I don't know, on Fox, I guess it was like. Simpsons, Futurama, and then eventually Family Guy, and then not Family Guy, and then Family Guy again. And so we did a lot of, and he was a big fan of Simpsons, so we watched a lot of Simpsons. So previous to, I don't know, maybe mid-high school, which would have been 2001, two, three-ish, I watched a lot of Simpsons and then pretty much stopped watching The Simpsons entirely. Not out of like uh, some realization that like conscious realization that like, oh, this is really going downhill and I don't think it's funny anymore because I was still a kid and I probably laughed at it just as much as previous episodes. It just wasn't what I was into anymore and I was on to other things. Uh, more th- things were a little more like something a teenage boy would laugh at. Like other animated comedies started to push The Simpsons out for me, like Futurama, like Family Guy, and then I guess, you know, American Dad. But even then, I kind of stopped watching all of those by the end of high school for the most part, besides the occasional Futurama romp so yeah uh and i can't say i've watched any simpsons at all for sure since college huh so i have a my journey starts in a similar place and ends very differently um i remember 
and just looking at the timeline, this had to be season one. I remember coming downstairs one night and seeing my parents watching a cartoon and them telling me I had to go back to bed because this was a cartoon for grownups and my head could not, I was like, what? No. How, how is, no, cartoons are what I watch. Um, but I distinctly remember it was that season one episode of The Simpsons where um, Bart spray paints Skinner's face on a uh, on a wall at the schoolyard because for some reason that image was burned into my brain. Um, but my parents got over that pretty quick and, you know, The Simpsons became just a part of like, that's just the family, you know, that's what we would just watch every Sunday night. Like it was just The Simpsons, like, of course. Um, and later in college and beyond, like when I first got a TiVo, which for you children out there uh, is what we used to use before all of the shows streamed all over everywhere. It was a, you know, you could record shows, but because the Simpson was, was on syndication and in, um, in Lancaster at the time you could get two Fox affiliates. You would get like the, I think you would get the Philly affiliate and the Lancaster affiliate, which meant that if, you know, I could record four episodes of the Simpsons every night on my TiVo. So I would always have this backlog of like 10 or 20 Simpsons episodes just sitting and sitting on my TiVo. And whenever I just wanted something to put on TV, you know, when you just want, just want something on, it was just the Simpsons. So it was just, I kind of just had a constant random shuffle of Simpsons episodes going, um, in one form or another for probably most of my adult life post-college. <laughs> um, because if it wasn't TiVo, then, um, uh, or some other kind of, you know, cloud-based DVR, then, you know, now we've got the FX Now app on the Apple TV where you can literally shuffle through every Simpsons episode and just get a random one. Um, so I have seen, we did the math on it this once and assuming a random distribution of episodes, like I've, I've seen every episode of The Simpsons probably 10 or 15 times. Um, wow. At least, you know, of the early seasons, um, back when I was really, really mainlining this stuff. Um, so it's weird. My relationship with the show, clearly I have watched a lot of it. Um, and I will freely admit that pressing shuffle on the Simpsons is getting worse and worse because the number of bad episodes to good episodes is really starting to tilt in a way that's getting rough. Um, so it's kind of harder just to put on a random episode and enjoy yourself. Um, so yeah, that's kind of my journey. Um, we don't watch it. We're not watching as much Simpsons uh, right now, just because, um, you know, when we turn it, just the show you put on in the background, we kind of go through these phases where we go through one and we get a little tired of it. And then it's Seinfeld and we get tired of that. And then it's 30 rock and kind of go through this, go through this order. But, um, yeah, so that's my journey with the Simpsons. And I realized that I really, really, really appreciate certain eras of the Simpsons. Um, and they grow on me as, as, as I get older, um, even though I've seen them a thousand times, like there's still new things I'm discovering in, uh, older episodes and, and those sorts of things. I think one reason why I didn't ever continue with it was because a, like my mother to this day thinks it's, you know, stupid and crass and whatever, you know, she probably watches comedies that are much more crass than the average Simpson episode was or is. And also Shay does not. She's probably never watched an episode of The Simpsons what? and has no interest to. She doesn't think it's funny or has any interest. So, huh. um, yeah, she's weird. But so that's just not been like so if it wasn't me seeking it out. And also, I really like none of my friends really have like an attachment to it. I don't know if it's an age thing that like 
as we were just sort of coming into the age where like TV meant something to us, you know, late teens, early adulthood, I guess they had already moved past that. And so it had no, and it was getting bad. So it doesn't really have a place in our heart, like a classic show would for somebody else. Um, So I think that might be part of it. So those things put together just makes it like not even, I mean, if it was on like Netflix, I'd probably be like, oh, I'll watch a random since episode and see how it holds up today. Having not literally not watched an episode in probably at least 10 years. So yeah. Uh, but I can imagine that just like a lot of other shows have are near and dear. And every time you watch an episode, you're like, oh, I never saw that joke or ne- never got that one before. And yeah, I imagine The Simpsons is very much the same way. Yeah. So and I think that, you know, because this thing has been the background noise of a good chunk of my life, <laughs> like uh, I thought it was time to take a harder look at it. Um, so and I think one of the hardest things about talking about The Simpsons is this show has been on for a very long time. And it is very clear that when you stack up an episode from the current season versus something from season one, they are very, very different shows. And I I found an article that I think was very helpful for me in kind of envisioning what The Simpsons is and um, and maybe what it means for what The Simpsons can be in the future. Um, and this was a you know, this was somebody's internet post. Um, I think it was on io9, but we'll we'll link it. I, um, the person's username was Lightning Louie, so I have to give that person credit for um, kind of this framework. I I've shifted it a little bit based on my own feelings about The Simpsons, but as a mental model, uh, I think it's pretty good. So anyway, uh, Lightning Louie's um, hypothesis is that The Simpsons is really six different TV shows. Um, it's not one long show that's been on. It's six different TV shows that kind of shifted in really distinct ways based on who was writing the show and also what was going on culturally um, outside of the show. And one of the things like you have to remember about The Simpsons is that the people who are writing The Simpsons now grew up watching The Simpsons. Um, so that's something to keep in mind as we go through this. But anyway, let's kind of break it down. So um the simpsons debuted in the 1989-1990 uh tv season as a full-fledged show obviously before um it was a full-fledged show there was a series of shorts on the tracy ullman show and um and then there was the christmas special and then season one started formally um but really that period that 89 to 90 period season essentially season one um when the show was really under, still under Matt Groening's kind of full control, it was very much a satire of kind of popular culture and the consumerist culture um, of of the day. And, you know, if you go back and you watch season one, especially the Christmas special, it has a lot in common with um, the National Lampoon's movies, where you're kind of laughing at the family as they try to go and have the perfect Christmas or the perfect vacation. And they're trying to live up to some kind of weird consumerist culture ideal. And then we laugh at them about it. You know, uh, they go out and they try to have the great all American camping trip and Homer ends up, you know, um, people mistake him for Bigfoot. Like that's the kind of stuff that was going on in that first season. And it was really this kind of satirical look at things. Um, but that didn't really go on for very long. Um, obviously, Matt Groening, you know, was always behind the show. But um, in 1990 through 1993, um, the show, the head writer was James L. Brooks, who um, uh, who had previously worked on the Mary Tyler Moore show and Taxi and Terms of Endearment and Lightning Louie's 
term for this period is the, the he they, they call it the traditional humanist family sitcom. And this really has a lot of DNA from other kind of late 80s, early 90s family sitcoms where it's a lot of like um, they're just kind of reinforcing traditional family values. And, you know, they're dealing with kind of everyday little struggles and dealing with emotional hardship. Um, kind of the standout episode um, would be like Lisa's Substitute which is the Mr. Bergstrom episode where she gets this substitute teacher who really inspires her, but then he has to go because he's a substitute and she kind of has this growing up moment. And many people would call that one of their favorite episodes. It's a classic episode, um, but it kind of embodies this idea of like the early Simpsons is kind of a almost schmaltzy sitcom. Um, a lot of smart jokes, but still, you know, kind of traditional um, heartwarming kind of family sitcom stuff. Stuff. Um, as we, at the end of that period, um, you know, right there around like 93, 94, Conan O'Brien's influence, even though he was kind of on his way to go do other things, he'd been writing on The Simpsons and his influence and his voice started to show up. And that's where we get into like the absurd Simpsons that I think most people, when they think of The Simpsons, this is the, this is kind of the de facto Simpsons. This is the archetype of a Simpsons episode. Um, this is, you've got Marge versus the monorail, the Simpsons spinoff showcase, you know, uh, the short films about Springfield episode where it's just really, really bonkers stuff, you know, big musical numbers and wacky setups and, um, this kind of irreverent, uh, arbitrary kind of comedy that, you know, it was kind of Conan O'Brien's trademark of just like, um, just weird, funny stuff that doesn't have anything to do with anything. Um, it's almost nihilistic in that regard. Um, and I think the reason for that was that that traditional humanist family sitcom that The Simpsons was for a while was kind of becoming what everything was on um, on TV during this period, like mid-90s. So you think about like the big, a lot of the big sitcoms, um, you know, like Family Matters, Step by Step, Home Improvement, um, all these family sitcoms are very much in that vein of like, you know, oh, we're all going to learn something about being a family or being yourself and, you know, how to beat the bully without getting in a fight and that kind of stuff. So The Simpsons, now that that's becoming what it was, The Simpsons had to push back and it pushed back on the kind of um, episodes that mean something, you know. Uh, to arm episodes mean nothing. It's just a bunch of funny stuff that happens. Um, so they're not really criticizing the culture anymore, like they were at the beginning, but they're criticizing TV itself. They're criticizing other sitcoms. It, you know, they are a parody or a critique or a spoof of what was going on in TV at the time. So then we get into 97 to 2001. This is kind of a transition period for The Simpsons. And this is actually where they get um, where instead of criticizing culture or criticizing TV in general, they start to criticize The Simpsons. Um, the kind of the quintessential episode here is, I know I'm forgetting the title, but I think most people remember it. it's the Frank Grimes episode where um, we introduce this new character at the Springfield nuclear power plant, Frank Grimes, who is this like, you know, he's the guy who worked his way up from the gutter and he works hard for everything he has. And he comes in and he meets Homer Simpson, who is this buffoon who never comes into work, um, you know, and, and is bad at his job and all of this. And um, 
and you know Frank Grimes is like you live in a you've got a beautiful family and you live in this wonderful house and 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 you know I live in an apartment and I've worked so hard and I take everything so seriously and this this episode ends with Frank Grimes like imitating Homer Simpson's like foolishness electrocuting himself to death and then Homer falling asleep at Frank Grimes's funeral and that's the big laugh line at the end and really that whole episode is a critique of jerk ass Homer like of the just you know and it's really weird really dark episode but that kind of sets the tone for this period of the Simpsons um where they're deconstructing themselves they're criticizing the show itself um this was when they did all the things uh, this like 97 to 2001 period where like they decide that principal skinner is actually an imposter they do all these weird retcons and like oh yeah they move the town of springfield like two towns over um was this when did they do um who who killed mr burns mm, uh, i couldn't tell you off the top of my head this is hard because um i know we have no more errors to get to but this is you know probably the point i guess i was watching longer than this but the the bulk of my watching was i watched all these eras in syndication so they didn't really they didn't air them in order mm-hmm. they didn't air them in any sort of semblance so when you're talking about these episodes i never really thought in like so i was a kid i didn't think in like seasons or whatever it's like looking back i'm sure it's interesting to watch them like in coherent chunks but the first three things you describe here is like oh that's all this that's, that's all the simpsons yeah, but it, like it wasn't just in syndication. You don't realize it, especially because it's a cartoon. Like you can see the, the animation style does change a little bit over time, but especially to a younger person's eyes, not that discernibly. And so it's like, oh, well, there's some episodes where it's about, you know, family and other episodes are just crazy and wacky and other ones that are more deconstructive. But I never realized it broke down this yeah. way. So uh, Who Shot Mr. Burns was in 1995. Um, okay. So it bridged. Because it was the season-ending uh, cliffhanger, so it bridged season six and season seven. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you think about it, that you know, it is the absurdism of um, number one. It is kind of criticizing TV. It's criticizing the Who Shot Jr. cliffhanger from Dallas, which was actually from the seventies. But um, uh, but also the absurd, the absurdity of Maggie did it. Um, just the, the the nonsense of that the nihilism of we've built up this big mystery and all of America worked all summer to solve it. And the answer was the most absurd throwaway. It means nothing, you know, because it's not like, because you think, Oh, shot Mr. Burns. And they set up, maybe it was Homer, maybe it was Smithers. Um, uh, all these different things. You're like, Oh man, if Homer shot Mr. Burns, like, is, does that mean season seven Homer's going to be in jail? Like, it's like, no, because there's no consequences and nothing matters. And it's all this nihilist absurdism. Um, so, but when we get into that deconstructive period in 2001, um, so it's criticizing itself and because it had, you know, the Simpsons had reached this level of popular culture where it was like, it was the biggest thing around. So when you're the biggest thing around, the only thing you can do is, and your job is to criticize and tear other things down or deconstruct them and, you know, poke fun. The only thing you can do is turn it on yourself. Um, so where do we go from there? Um, and this is where things kind of, I think, kind of start to go wrong. Um, and this is where things are going to get a little weird. So uh, 2001 to 2008, this is kind of this semi-referential transition period. Um, this is, this is uh, you've got guest stars all over the place showing up. Um, at a much higher rate than they were before. And often those guest stars were, you know, weirdly connected to other things Fox happened to be doing during that time. Like, oh, 
huh, Simon Cowell's on your show. Weird. Um, right around the time that the premiere of American Idol is coming on. What a strange coincidence, Fox. Um, and that kind of came into kind of full flower in the modern era, which is um, 2008 into today. So for a while, The Simpsons really felt like it was just a tool of the Fox marketing empire because they didn't know what to do with it. And I don't think the writers knew what to do with it either. Um because of uh, what I'm going to call the collapse of the monoculture, which we'll talk about in a minute. But um, in that 2008 to 2000 or to today period, you know, this is where we're, we're into the modern era of The Simpsons, where they don't really poke fun at anything anymore. It is 100% referential. It has become, you know, rather than like doing a parody of a popular movie, which was never something they really did, they would refer to popular movies you know um maybe they would do a scene or have a joke be a send-up of a popular movie but like this is the period where they're just like no we're just gonna like what if we just remake the departed but it's in springfield and it's with our characters and that's all it is and you've got two or three or four of those types of episode every season um or like now what if we did a game of thrones kind of episode okay fine whatever do it that's a popular thing um what if we do one where Lisa writes a Harry Potter book? Okay, fine. Um, so instead of criticizing anything, it's just kind of canonizing every possible fandom. It just picks something that people like and like, cool, we're just going to do that. People like Legos, let's make a Lego episode. Um, so and in earlier iterations of American culture, this might have seemed kind of punk rock in its own way. Like, oh, we're going to lift up the subcultures and the weird things that... Um, you know, that are kind of below the radar. And we're going to use our platform to draw people's attention to um, like underappreciated shows and stuff, Um, which could be interesting. But number one, that's not what they're doing. They're pointing out the most some of the other most popular properties in the world, like 24. Um, But also in today's world where like every mall has a hot topic and an fye and whatever the fuck this new box lunch store is that just looks like a different hot topic that's also owned by hot topic like is 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 doing a you know doing it letting uh, the rick and morty team come in into a couch gag is that really all that like ooh wow they're really you know really highlighting underground artists and they're really celebrating pop culture in a way that nobody else does our entire pop culture exists to celebrate itself and to jerk itself off and the simpsons is just a part of that now um and the way that it worships the pop culture around itself, I think is like, you can mathematically prove, prove it. I did, I did some math on this in 2011, there were 22 episodes of the Simpsons and 17 of them had a big name guest star like, um, Lady Gaga or, um, Stephen Merchant or Neil Gaiman or like all people coming in and more or less playing themselves and being like, ha look at the celebrity on our show. Almost every episode had one of those, um, usually tied into something else that was going on in the culture. That makes sense. I'm trying to think like when the la- trying like with these dates and these time periods, I definitely watched a lot of Simpsons in that 01 to 08 period. I would assume probably in the earlier half of it. I'm trying to think the last episode like stands out in my mind. I definitely always... Even if I wasn't watching The Simpsons any longer, I always go and watch the Halloween specials yeah. because that was always something I really enjoyed. Um, but I, the last episode that stands out, I definitely watched beyond this, but the last episode that stands out in my mind 
was like the one where like Homer pisses off PBS and they're trying to get him. Oh, Missionary Impossible. That's actually one of my favorite episodes of the show. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I mean, I remember that being like, that's why I sent out because I laughed my ass off at that show. So that was really funny. But that would have fallen in this period, wouldn't it? Uh, let's let's quickly Google it and find out. I think that's in the I think that's in this, the um, um, absurdist period. Uh, okay, it's very possible. I, you know, these things all kind of blend together, especially because of I said how much I watch. But uh, yep. it is interesting to hear you talk about season eleven, February twentieth, two thousand. So right at the end of oh, the okay. right at the end of the absurdist right the period. Cool. Okay, so yeah, that's like the last one of the last ones that really sticks out in my in my mind. So um, boy, I really didn't watch a lot of Simpsons. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. So these distinct time periods, and there's no sign. I mean, 2008 till today is 10 years. There's no sign. That's the longest period on this list. So there's no sign of it changing or shifting in one direction or the other. Like, they're not like, oh, you know, actually, they're starting to really find their feet again. I think, I mean, I, I will say that I think that they've gotten, in some ways, they've gotten a little better uh, where I, th- actually, I would I would say no. I don't see a big shift Um because I think the show is essentially rudderless now. They are just hoping that they can ride on other people's trends and other people's ideas because they don't have any of their own. Because um, I think the and this is getting to my my thesis that um, uh, the Simpsons should no longer exist. Uh, it 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 can't <laughs> like it is um, and not just in the way that like oh they're out of ideas. I don't think they're out of ideas. I think that the core. Um, core essence of the simpsons cannot exist and cannot work in today's culture anymore so what do i mean by that so i i teased the idea of the collapse of the monoculture um now first i want to be very clear uh monoculture is a weird world weird word um Initially, it applied to uh, agricultural things, monoculture being like you only plant one kind of crop in your field, I believe. But um, it's also used by shitheads as a alternative to multiculturalism. That is not what I'm talking about. Um, it's it's used sometimes in, um, you know, kind of cultural criticism to talk about a period in America where the cultural and media landscape was a lot less fragmented than it is today um where in terms of the media we consumed um we were a lot more unified in a lot of things and um also just aspirationally like what it meant to live a good life you know and what the american dream was like those things were a little bit more generally agreed upon for better or for worse um, and when I talk about this stuff, I'm not talking about it in a nostalgic way of, boy, we need to go back there, just in a historic sense of this is the way things were at one point, they are different today. Um, so as an example of this idea of what I would call the monoculture, um, this is really pre-internet. Tough to say if the internet is what killed the monoculture or if um, it was other things that were happening at the same time and the internet just happened to be a part of it. Who knows? Not really the point. Um, but so if you think about the pre-internet days, I looked at this and um, the top rated TV shows uh, for the 89 to 90 television season, seven of the top 10 were sitcoms. Of those seven sitcoms, six of them were family sitcoms. One was a workplace sitcom. If you can call Cheers a workplace sitcom. Um the other three in that top 10 were America's Funniest Home Videos, which is what we used before we had YouTube, um, <laughs> football, and 60 Minutes. So again, 70% of them are 
sitcoms. Most of those are family sitcoms. Now, if you look at the top 10 TV shows for the 2016 to 2017 uh, season, only one sitcom, three police procedurals, one uh, courtroom procedural, two family dramas, a dancing show, and football. So it's just much more varied. The kinds of things that people are watching in primetime uh, today is very different than it was. And it's just we're watching a broader variety of things. Um, so was it due to there were certainly less choices in 89 and 90. You had three networks and then uh, some people had cable, unlike today where we have more choices, but more choices leads to us, you know, watching more things. But also we start wanting more choices when we get tired of the same three things that were always available. So it's kind of hand in hand. Um, but was it also this idea of there was more of a sense of conformity around what we do after dinner and what kinds of TV shows we want to watch and what are the, you know, the right things to do and those sorts of things. Um, interestingly, as an aside, um, a lot of people talk about when they talk about the monoculture, they talk about like in music, when Michael Jackson would release a new album, the world would stop because no matter who you were and where you lived and what kind of music you liked, everybody liked Michael Jackson and it was a big deal. Um, and they say, oh, that's, it's not that way today. It's actually, um, if you look at in 1989, again, I did some research here, uh, 27 different artists had a number one single in 1989. In 2017, it was only 11 different people had number one singles. Um, so we're actually seem as a culture, we seem to be in more agreement about music, less agreement about TV shows. But I also think that's because the music industry is collapsing. And um, if you if, if you aren't Taylor Swift or Migos, it's very, very difficult to make a record and get it on the charts. Um, uh, anywho. Do you also think that for music, like... Um I'd be curious to see like more long longitudinal stat study. Like did Michael Jackson have a single in, you know, 87 and 88 and 89 and 90 where I feel like nowadays one hit one, like I know one hit wonders were a thing in all of hit, all musical history, but I feel like possibly because I am completely out of touch with pop and music and have no knowledge of anybody. And that only gets worse and worse every day. But I feel like, artists coming like popular artists come and go much more quickly there's, there's a couple that really stick but like i feel like every day is like oh you never heard this the most popular song in the world by this person that you've never heard of before <laughs> i'm like oh i've never heard of any of these things like or at least even when i was in college it's like oh yeah lady gaga she's popular like taylor swift she's popular they're gonna always have singles but like now it's like every day i'm just like hearing 10 new names i never heard of before uh, so i don't know i think that might be more uh an old man thing because when i okay, actually when i actually true. looked at the charts i realized year on year it was a lot of the same people um, okay who you know dominated the charts for an extended period of time um interesting but no i share your uh like i feel like every week i'm 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 seeing some some new soundcloud rapper with a face full of bad tattoos whose name lil something or the other being t like is the savior of hip-hop and i'm like i am too old i have no idea what any of this is <laughs> um but anyway um so yeah so but yeah so the idea was that in the 90s in the late 80s early 90s we there was there was there was a much more unified culture to critique there was a there was this centralized idea um and this centralized kind of american aspiration that the simpsons could critique um but that kind of started to disappear um in the mid to late 90s when you had the rise of the internet and you had popular culture fragmenting more and also america 
becoming more open to like alternative alternative isn't the right word, but you know, um, that there were, there were paths to happiness that weren't, you know, two cars, two and a half kids, um, and a three bedroom home in the suburbs, which was kind of painted as the goal for everyone. But we came more accustomed to the idea, like, oh, it doesn't have to be the goal for everyone. Oh, we can do other things. Um, so as that kind of monoculture collapsed and, and the culture itself started to fragment, the Simpsons didn't have one big target anymore. So, you know, um, so for a while they could, you know, they could target what else was going on on TV. But as that became more and more fragmented, um, they, well, okay, maybe we can make fun of ourselves. But now they've run out of targets because, and also partially, when you're the Simpsons today, everybody else is the little guy. So it's very hard because you're punching down on any any other TV show or media property that you could parody. You're punching down unless it's the Avengers or Star Wars. Like, um, so with this fractured landscape and them being on, you know, such a, you know, such a huge level of success, they can't be a critical voice anymore. Um, and I don't think they want to be because I also think they're they're the shitty thing is they're not afraid to piss off um, South Asian people, but they are afraid to piss off like the Harry Potter fans. <laughs> like because, you know, when they do Harry Potter stuff, it's always very reverential and oh yeah, Harry Potter's great and we all love it. Um so and another thing, and, and I, this idea comes from, you know, a YouTube critic on YouTube who I always cite, Movie Bob. He did a three-part series on the Apu situation, and he said maybe it's just time for The Simpsons to go because so much of it is a relic of the 90s that no longer works today. And the more you try to fix it, the worse it's going to be. And maybe we just need to leave it behind because a character like Apu or any number of other things in the Simpsons that may or may not be problematic, you can leave them behind and be like, that was an old show. And that's the way things were done. That's not the way we would do it today. But there you have it as opposed to, yeah, when this started, it was fine. But well, not fine. But we weren't as sensitive when we started it. But we're continuing to do it, even though we know it's wrong. Like, maybe it's just time to let it all go because this idea of an animated family sitcom that somehow skewers the rest of pop culture just doesn't work anymore. So I kind of, I was wondering to myself, like, is there a path forward for The Simpsons? Um, This show that I love, but also, I mean, I've been watching the same 10 seasons for, I don't know, 15 years. I think I can keep going on what's out there, but could this show that I love, is there a way to save it? Um, Could it, could there be some way for it to return to its roots, have a point of view again, have something to say again? Um, I think one of the challenges in front of it is it's been kind of hemmed in by other shows that took what it was doing and now do them better. Um, Bob's Burgers um, and before Bob's Burgers, King of the Hill was doing the humanist family sitcom thing in and they're both excellent so you've got a you know you've got this working class family they're navigating the struggles of work and school and family life and they don't without compromising who they are and affirming their individuality and their uh love as a family it's it's heartwarming it's funny it's relatable like those shows are knocking it out of the park um family guy has the absurdity thing locked down um that's their whole thing occasionally they do some social commentary although they get a little muddled with that but if you just you know a show where just nothing matters and um whatever they time travel in this episode and uh this episode's a murder mystery who cares you know like 
that's Family Guy. They've got they are the absurd uh, sitcom that. Uh, and then they do the referential thing, although they, you know, they're referencing the seventies and eighties in the way that, you know, um, the Simpsons used to. Um, so I was wondering if any show on TV is really doing any kind of social commentary anymore, or is that just something we don't do on TV anymore? Um, uh, Black Mirror, I think is the most obvious answer, but that's kind of got a pretty narrow lane. Like it's really about social commentary around the technology, technological aspects of our culture. Um, South Park used to do social commentary, but I don't know, fuck South Park. That show is I don't know what they're doing anymore, and I don't know if they were ever that good. But um, I just don't know like what The Simpsons could be. I mean, for a while there was hope that because they kept doing these flash forward episodes that take place in their kind of alternate future. Um, occasions of a holiday episode in this alternate future where like. Bart's divorced and Lisa's married to Millhouse, who's a zombie. And um, but it actually showed some promise because the relationships were different in the show. Um, and, you know, like there's a great scene in one of them where like Bart and Lisa, they're adults now and they go up to the treehouse and like get drunk and talk about Marge. Like and I was like, oh, shit, that's like a kind of a touching scene that, um, you know, I've never seen before. And like, maybe there's something here, but they're never going to do that. Um, so I don't know. I don't know how we go forward with The Simpsons other than just say we had a decent run. Go home. Yeah. So a lot of what you're saying for me, it I've been thinking a lot lately about comedy and like what comedy, what role comedy plays in society. And I know it's very like broad and ambitious. I'm not going to try and delve into that or figure that out here. And there's a lot of, you know, the state of comedy is very interesting because, you know, we're much more socially aware than we were 10 or 20 or 30 years ago, 40 years ago, and sort of, you know, what is okay to do in comedy, what crosses lines, right? And different shows that I feel like comedy has come so far. I know that I, you know, like to pick on people and and start fights by saying like Seinfeld isn't funny and things like that. Uh, Take that back. Because it's not and it's boring. Um, Mm. (laughs) But I think that I think that much of I mean, you think that what comedy is doing today is different than what comedy was doing back then. Yeah. And in in some ways that like obviously they've borrowed from our previous, you know, in a previous TV episode, the idea of like running gags and not just like the gag that Homer is a dunce. Like that's a theme. That's a, you know, a running gag, if you will. But that's just a premise of the show. More that referential stuff to previous episodes and like running lines of dialogue and things like that, that they wouldn't have done in a pre-serialized TV world necessarily. And Mm -hmm. not that there aren't plot points and things that happen. Like there's things that happen on the Simpsons that like can affect the world. Like I guess sometimes. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, No, like, uh, you know, Maude Flanders died and you know, uh, that was permanent. Right. But that's like the exception, not the rule, generally speaking. Absolutely. I also think that I've been thinking a lot of things called like about like, what I just call laugh density, how much mm. any episode makes you laugh of a show just because even things and I, I really am focusing on the time and place really matters for comedy in a way that I'm only I've always argued for Seinfeld is that people only like it because it's nostalgic and that a modern viewer going in is not going to find it funny if they have no connection to it at all, which is how I feel where even shows that are more recent, like a show like Arrested Development, don't get me wrong, Arrested Development is a funny show. But I came to Rest Development pretty late to the game, and I already felt that I think comedy is like hyper iterative, where it's always looking around itself and like because a lot of these writers go different shows and these things, you know, it's a lot of it's very collaborative process. I think that you just sort of just like it makes for this like 
almost like hyper competitive nature where like the amount of laughs the show gets needs to just continue continually increase where a show like the simpsons might just rest in its laurels for a really long time and not try (laughs) and like it removes itself because the simpsons isn't competing with like 30 rock or new girl or rest you know rest development or sunny right in the same way that like it used to compete with sitcoms really simpsons is competing with like big bang theory and i don't know two and a half men what else what other shows are sitcoms nowadays people watch tim allen's dumb show like i don't know like yeah, that, that got canceled a year ago man okay well you know we're, we made the old man point <laughs> earlier like this is a thing but that's my point though is that like i don't even know what those shows are and to me the simpsons fits in more with those nowadays than it fits in with modern comedy yeah well so i think that the evolution how comedy mutates over time is and like you say like i mean you're not that much younger than me but you find Seinfeld like it does nothing for you. And like, how did it miss you entirely? Um, and that's because it moves so fast. And so I, I once read, I mean, a million years ago, I read some article. Um, uh, it, it was so long ago that I read it in a print magazine. So a what? Um, a, it's uh, it's it's like um, it's like when you print out Wikipedia uh, okay. for, your, for your grandparents gotcha. um, uh, that suggested that because it asked the question like from an evolutionary perspective perspective what is laughter right why do we laugh where does that come from and the hypothesis was we developed it in our early pre-language uh days as a way of indicating to our fellow hunter-gatherers that there is there is no danger here um so we would hear a rustle in the bushes and think it was a tiger and then it would turn out to be a little bird and we would laugh and that would tell the other people in our hunting party that everything's cool man don't worry um so we adapted this thing of laughter um, as a way of responding to a release of tension um, of there's a danger and then safety and then we laugh and uh, that signals to people around us that there's no threat. Um, so when we look at modern comedy, it's tickling that evolutionary impulse of um, first, there's a little bit of a transgression of a, so- a societal norm, essentially. Um, and then a release of that tension and then we laugh. So, um, the set above the joke, you like, um, uh, you know, um, creates, uh, oh, he's going to say something bad. Oh no. What's he going to do? Oh no. He said something good. Um, so if, if comedy is, if, if part of the equation of comedy starts with fear, right? then every, you know, kind of micro generation as we move through the kind of social fears, the social anxieties are going to be different based on because, you you know, it's what are the things that feel a little taboo is going to be different depending on how old you are and what culture you're experiencing in. Um, so it's always going to be a little bit different what anyone finds funny, like. I still have not found anyone who can explain to me why the Blues Brothers is part of a comedy show. Like people talk about classic SNL and they're like, oh yeah, the Blues Brothers, man, what a joke. And I go back and I watch it and like, it's just guys. They're just singing. What is the, where is the gag? What's the punchline here? And it's because it just comes from a very different context and it's almost instinctual. And the reason I love Seinfeld and you don't is because for whatever reason, the the way that Seinfeld, you know, tickled the taboos 
was different for you because you were working with a different set of cultural taboos. And kids today are working with a different set of cultural taboos. Like, they can laugh at Logan Paul, and I'm like, what the fuck is even this? I don't even understand a minute of this, but they find it funny. And I'm like, I don't I don't even know where the joke is here. But it's because it's, it's about a, this evolving set of cultural norms, and then the comedy which thrives on the cultural norms to get the laughs. Yeah, I think I, I agree with you. I think it's definitely a, a part of it. Although there's plenty of people my age who do like Seinfeld. I do think it sure. is a... I think it is a, I do think that, I think I, I'm just going to still commit that I think comedy relies heavily on nostalgia and at least, you know, the kind of comedy you watch over and over again, because I, I think about things like, because like what it, my, I didn't get to my point about Arrested Development is that I came to that show a little late and I watched it and I was like, oh, this is, this is okay. Like, this is pretty funny. I get why this is, I, and like, I, I understand it more from like a, the way I might listen to like, I don't know, like a blue cheer album where it's like, okay, I kind of get why this was important for heavy metal i don't like it yeah but like i get i get why it was like important to building up now that might be more like a black sabbath album where it's like yeah i'm not gonna listen to this every day but i get why this is important why it built that's what arrested development is for me where like to me a show like it's always sunny philadelphia or you know 30 rock has t- taken their formula made it even better and moved on <laughs> and another, you know another show is going to come down the road that does can do the exact same things to those shows where or t- took a piece of it you know uh Rest development still has a straight man. Yeah. Where Sonny Philadelphia says, ah, we don't fucking need a straight man. <laughs> where, you yeah. know, and those are the kind of things. I also think the comedy has sort of split, at least the comedy I watch, where you have comedy that still has not so much that it has morals and values, because I think, like you said, the collapse of the monoculture has sort of eliminated that a little bit, but more so that, like, it still makes you feel something and you feel a connection to the characters. A show like Parks and Recreation or A New Girl. Which also just finished this past week, by the way. Which mm-hmm. is pretty solid, pretty solid ending. Um, Verse show, which is it's just complete absurdism, which is a Archer or a Sunny Philadelphia. And I think that as those that tree forks, you'll continue to see those things get you know iterated on and distilled down and further fork. I think that's partially what's happening right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I know what you mean where you say, like, oh, I can appreciate Arrested Development from, like, an academic perspective. Like, I can look at it and I can see that is a very well-crafted joke. Even if it doesn't make me laugh, I can see, ah, uh, yes, that was a well-timed, that was a well-timed sight gag. Um, I don't know if I agree that it's iterative, because that implies that it's like a furthering and a refinement of the form. I think it's more of a... I mean, I think there's some of that on a technical level, um, a certain style of joke writing that, you know, people enjoy or um, a certain style of dialogue writing that uh, is, you know, is 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 popular and kind of fashionable for a while. Um, but I don't think we're working towards a perfect comedy. I think it's it's a natural outgrowth of it's a reflection of the culture of the time and the context of the time. Um more so than it is like we're we're working on a ref- we're we're refining uh what is funny um i don't disagree with you i'm not i'm not saying that we're going towards a perfect comedy that's why i'm trying to emphasize that like we have like a forking tree of comedy that like mm-hmm. different veins of like said joke styles and like comedy style where like you know there's no reason like a really like you know parks and rec should not be able to make shay cry and then like laugh cry from laughing in the same episode but it does because it's like has gotten so good at making you instantly connect with characters, but also making it really funny at the same time Yeah, where, you know, and that laugh density, I come back to that, like even at its peak, you know, you're someone who loves Seinfeld. You might laugh, you know, you're sitting there and you're lazy boy in 1993 and you're watching an episode of Seinfeld and you might laugh six times an episode and you really like it. Now you go fast forward 
30 years today and you watch an episode of, you know, it's always sunny in Philadelphia, you might laugh 20 times an episode. And I think that that's just because like we're cr- like we're cramming more and more mirth into our, you know, comedy than what used to be there, I think anyway. So there's actually um, uh, there's when you talk about laugh density, um, apparently in certain, you know, in, in certain sitcom writing circles, um, there is an idea that, um, like they actually work towards a certain jokes per minute count. Um, and I think that the target is usually like something like four jokes per minute. Um, and if you watch a show like, you know, a very formulaic sitcom, like two and a half men, like it's almost like clockwork every 15 seconds, there is a laugh line, um, and that's that's intentional. Like they're going for that, and they're going for a mix of high and low brow because they're very, you know, they know they have to be the biggest sitcom in America, which means they got to be appeal to everybody, and um, you got to have a certain you know number of poop jokes along with a certain number of actual wordplay and uh, so on and so forth. Um, and I think that that number has gone up. I think the fashion in a lot of you know modern sitcoms has been to go for super high joke density. I think Arrested Development is one of those where there is like always a sight gag or always a, you know, a joke within a joke within a joke that you had to watch from three seasons ago. I think that that very high joke density is part of like modern television writing. Like they're going for that because I think it has something to do with binge watching and you really want to pack a lot in there so that you can continue to have value down the road. And, you know, I think that there's probably something for like the measure of a good comedy writer is how many jokes can you sneak into a page of dialogue? Um, cause that shows how clever you are. Whereas, you know, the old style of not the old, uh, the a previous style of comedy writing, which might have been more in, you know, like the Seinfeld era was fewer jokes per minute, but more, um, but where the jokes were more integrated into the, uh, into the the script and the dialogue and trying to make it a little more naturalistic. I don't know. But I think that that is a that's a feature of, you know, where shows are today. But also, if you watch maybe less jokey sitcoms, like maybe like a modern family, um, there is a lower joke density. And that's probably by design because they want some more of the family moments. And, you know, they want to do a little bit more storytelling. But, yeah, I think that these are, you know, you can kind of break down the elements of, you know, like you say, like always sunny did away with the straight man. It's basically, you know, you took the Seinfeld formula of, you know, um, you know, rotten people being rotten. Um, but you really dialed up the rottenness, um, and made them completely unrelatable. Whereas at least Seinfeld, you were like, yeah, it's, you know, that's how I would respond in that situation. If I was, you know, as crazy as George, um, whereas always sunny, Nobody, nobody's watching that like, yeah, I would put shoe polish on that baby's face. Like, <laughs> um, like you're not supposed to relate to the characters. Um, but, yeah. Um, uh, and I, I do think that, like, there's a certain reliance on, I'm, I'm trying to think more about, to get back to Simpsons and sort of, like, it's its status. I never really thought of its status as, like, a parody or a satire the way that you outlined it tonight. Because that's not, I don't always well, think of TV as doing that. Yeah. There's po- I always think the individual jokes as being satirical, you know, or like a parody of something. But to have a whole the whole premise be that I never really like partially because I think the nature of how I watched it and it being syndicated and all being garbled up together. Some of that was, you know, a little confused, but it is very interesting. And I think that like in some ways, I feel like in a lot of ways we've moved away from and I think this is to your point. We've moved away from parody and satire as 
comedy, mm-hmm. at least in television, because I mean, I think it's very popular in written form on the internet and things like with The Onion and Clickhole and these sort of things, because I think it's... I don't want to say it's easier because I don't mean to diminish the art because there is definitely an art to it, but it relies on some very kind of easy conventions and also some conventions that be a little bit unpalatable. Like hmm. Apu is a parody of a stereotype, right? Or, um, or it's just a stereotype, I guess. So so that's the that's that's the line, I mean, that's tricky to walk, is that you can look at some characters on shows and and they are they are a satire of the stereotype right like they are um you know isn't it funny that this is the way that some people see gay people right right uh and that's our character but apu i think always just started out as a stereotypical like indian convenience store owner like it wasn't boy isn't it funny that this is how americans think of indian people was just like no he's just an indian guy (laughs) but like don't you think it's like but not defending this don't come across that way it's more just getting at the nature of the simpsons is that like i feel like every character was sort of not necessarily the point of being a satire but that every single character in spring in springfield was sort of a stereotype with an exclamation point right like the classic jewish clown the classic fat dad the classic you know too cool for school kid like but always just like a little bit like the geeky comic book guy that each each of those characters is like a very over-the-top version of a stereotype already and so not in that sense, don't take that as like a defensive racial stereotyping because I'm not defending Apu. I don't have a horse in that race at all. But I think that that's something that like is inherent to the show and why I think that uh, to my point earlier, like I feel like it's a little bit trite at this point. I don't know. So yes and no, because um, a lot of those characters, you know, like Disco Stew kind of being the almost deconstructionist form of like, you know, stereotype with an exclamation point, like he's he's disco stew like that's that's all there is to it um uh those were sort of later additions to the show like actually if you watch earlier seasons um the the you know the stereotype characters were just kind of stereotypes sometimes they were actually tributes to existing cultural figures um but they were like you know because like Krusty being a Jewish comic and being like this Catskills old style, um, you know, Jewish comic, like that was a later addition. Like early on, Krusty was a, you know, the, the early seasons, Krusty was just this like crass sellout clown uh, that existed only to hawk products to children via afternoon television. Um, they didn't give him like, you know, this kind of... Um, uh jewish backstory and um this kind of you know backstory of like always this kind of you know catskill style old 1960s comic you know who was out of his time and uh you know his jokes weren't landing anywhere that was a relatively recent addition um so the characters as they were initially developed especially like and go back and watch season one homer's not a big dumb idiot like yeah he's kind of a buffoon but um not any more of a buffoon than a typical sitcom dad of the time you know um it it wasn't until you know the absurd era where you really started to get jerk ass homer who like um 
you know, drives an electric car into the spring, into, into the bay because he thinks hybrid means it can drive underwater. Like that's like, that's a, that's a version of Homer that isn't necessarily the original. And not to say the original is the true one, but just as we're tracing the origins of the characters and their original intent, um, the stereotypes were just stereotypes. The episode, I think season two, where Homer eats the poisonous sushi and has mm. his, um, near death, you know, experience. Um, those characters in that sushi restaurant are not okay. Um, and that's, and that wasn't in a way of, you know, skewering America's, you know, um, you know, one dimensional view of Asian Americans. It was just like, uh, wouldn't it be funny if the guys in the sushi restaurant all talked like this, uh, you know? Yeah. Okay. That's fair. Uh, but to, like, it doesn't ignore my point about like, and I think to get back to your point about the death of monoculture, and that's why The Simpsons shouldn't be around anymore, is that there's not a lot of shows doing straight parody and satire anymore. Yeah. Um, and I and I don't know why that is, other than it could be that there isn't a big target anymore, which is the monoculture hypothesis. Um, and it could be that um, it's harder to poke fun at anyone um, these days because everyone is much more defensive of their particular subculture or their um or their lifestyle or anything like that like the the simpsons could poke fun at the beatles when even when you know and you know even when its primary audience was baby boomers who worshiped the beatles like unto god um they could poke fun at the beatles and they could do an episode where like uh, you know um, Homer was in a band that, you know, a, a, a vocal band that ripped off the Beatles a little bit. Um, you could do that episode and, and, um, but imagine if the Simpsons made fun of Beyonce, like Twitter would not have it. Um, you, we've, we've split it off into so many smaller groups and all of us are members of many smaller groups. And, uh, the existing logic is the only people who can make fun of my group is me. So we're all very hands off about each other's groups and that's probably the right way to be, but that makes it very hard to have any kind of satire other than satire about your own personal culture and what culture you are representing. And now you can satirize that, but because the culture is so fragmented, um, it's probably kind of tough to do general cultural satire. You could do political satire or you could do, you know, a satire of a particular culture as long as it's being written and performed by members of that culture but um i think it's i don't know i just feel like we're too fragmented and and we're we're too defensive these days yeah. to do anything like it yeah i think that's definitely part of it i also think there's a time element where like so when i think of a show like like when when, when simpsons was ever getting as close to like political commentary or parody you need to and then this is a similar problem south park has or saturday night live where it's too relevant where in, if you watch it a month later, it just doesn't mean anything anymore yeah. because it's out of the news cycle. And we don't like, you know, I always love the, um, you know, the classic Simpsons gag of, uh, you know, when Kang and um, Kotos Kotos come and they, you know, run for president. And like, what are you going to do? Vote for a third party? And like Ross Perot punches his hat out. Like no one's going to get that nowadays besides people who knew who Ross Perot was. Yeah. And because of that, I mean, I think it's funny because as a kid, I was kind of obsessed with Ross Perot. Big surprise. Of course you um, were. <laughs> Just because I thought, I just thought it was like a, a novelty. Just oh, like, I'm like, who is this person? Why? Like, what does it mean to be you're, a third? Like, you were into the oddball third parties when you were seven. <laughs> yeah. Um, and 
no one's gonna get that. Just like why like the classic SNL skits, they aren't the ones that were like people imitating presidents and things and other things going on in the news. It was just like the more absurd stuff of like, you know, either from any from any era of SNL. Not that I'm an expert in that, but like whether it was like the Chevy Chase days or the Sandler, you know, days, like the the skits that or Will Ferrell days, like the skits that stand out are ones that are completely removed from time reference for the most part. They might parody something lightly, but overall they don't really do that. So and I think that the most popular TV shows today, they're more internal. Like it's always sunny. There might be some episodes that like, you know, are a what did you call them? Like a referential episode where like they imitate something or yeah. whatever. But it'd be more like a stylistic thing that is part of general pop culture that we would get as opposed to like particular people or situations. And they rely more on the, their own internal humor and internal character development. And I want to use growth, but just like running gags and things like that, that, you know, and that's always funny, like that Mac is gay and that like right. that gag is there and there from like the first season. And it only is really only fully getting capitalized on now in the what 11th, 12th season. Like it's always been there and it always gets you for a laugh, but they don't need to reference, you know, current events to get there, which I think is something that or just pop culture references in general that like a lot of people don't get. Like even watching Family, a show like Family Guy, which is basically just like a series of pop culture, you know, references strung together in a vague plot. I, you know, they just the only they only get people by throwing 100 at you. Yeah. I I mean, I, I, I don't get half of them. Like, I don't know who that actor is. I don't, especially me, like, especially me. But I, I get enough that it can be funny sometimes. But I don't know. In South Park, same thing. Like, it was so hyper relevant. They go back and watch the episode. I'm like, what were they referencing here? Why is it funny? Right, right. You know? and, and their logic was so twisted. And also, South Park with their. And 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 their entire kind of point of view has become very, very dated, where they kept trying to be the third way. And, you know, um, their answer to both you know, both sides of the debate are wrong in any debate the both established sides have to be wrong and we as south park have to figure out the, the middle way with ugh, i got real tired of that nonsense but <laughs> I mean, um, I, it's funny because i liked i liked that approach but i always didn't like south park so i just didn't think it was that like i liked the episodes that were heavy on the commentary but i didn't like all the shit coming out of your mouth jokes like i just didn't yeah it well, just turned and, instantly ruined it for me but and there were so many times where it's like where it's obviously you know um you know, it's, it's, they're obviously wrong. And also the idea of, oh, we're an equal opportunity offender. You know, that has, we've, we've come to find that like, no, that's not true. Um, because you don't get to make fun of black people just because you also made fun of white people on your show. Like, that's not how it works. Um, because guess what? Um, that's the first, when someone, when a white person watches that, that's the first joke they've heard about white people all day. So it's fine. But a black person hears a joke about black people and it's the 500th joke they've heard today. So it's not exactly the same thing. Um, and South Park is only finally getting around to realizing that. But anyway. Um, I do have another theory though. Yes. So, because I was thinking about this sort of, um, you know, how we're talking about, we compared TV in the monoculture and like music in the monoculture and I was thinking about politics in the monoculture culture of how even though we have the internet and we have a you know tons of ideas that we can learn about and read about and exchange ideas with in a way we can never do it before we have somehow also become even more divided on one hand but also more tribalistic and more party based than ever before more partisan than ever before at least if things will tell you you know that's what a lot of commentary will tell you and to the point where and Maybe this is rose tinted glasses, but I feel like it has become a lot more like 
hate-filled and vitriol-filled than like it was previously where like if the simpsons goes and makes a joke i don't know that's like pushes a that takes a political stance or aggressively pushes the line like you're instantly alienating half the country before you might not have alienated been like ah yeah it's kind of true haha whatever it's it's a comedy like people are so like angry (laughs) that they can't possibly consume any show that would possibly contradict or even just pick fun at their point of view so that's why shows rely more on their own internal kind of well and that's comedy and, and that's part of the state of political identity in america today there are a lot of studies that show that the defining feature of modern um popular politics in america is negative partisanship which means i i define myself as a democrat because i hate republicans yeah. as opposed less than i define myself as a democrat because i agree with the party platform now this is actually the studies show this is much more prevalent uh, on the conservative side, where conservative conservatism in America today is much more likely to be driven by a uh, by negative feelings towards liberals than it goes the other way. It is on both sides, but more so on the red side. No, that makes um, sense because the makes sense because those that anger comes out of you know to quote Yoda in you know one of the best Star Wars movies ever. No, um, like you know. Anger comes from fear, right? Like they're they're a party of fear and that makes you angry and hate field because you're scared of the other side where, you know, like I said, it does exist on both sides, but way more on that other side. And that's and that comes down to the comedy thing, because like you're scared, like the things that comedy does make you makes you afraid. Yeah. Not the good way for comedy, but the bad way. Well, and it and, and it becomes and our political identity is much more really in today it, it has become much more a sense of identity than ideas um where you are a liberal because that is the kind of person you are as opposed to those are the kind of ideas you have so when a tv show pokes fun at liberals um even if they perfectly write it so that they're poking fun at liberal beliefs as opposed to liberal people you watch that and again because now your politics are linked to your identity that's not an attack on your ideas and your beliefs that's an attack on you as a person so it's much harder to laugh at that than it is um you know um uh you know like you know like oh boy it doesn't make sense that you can be you know pro-abortion but anti-death penalty like what's that um or like like an individual person i was like oh al gore isn't he a funny robot like right Whereas, you know, okay, so you're poking fun at the logic of something. You used to be able to get away with that when people associated their politics more with their ideas than their identity. But today, you do that same joke and it cuts much more deeply because you feel like you're making fun of who I am, not what team I happen to be rooting for, you know? Um, So I think it's much harder to go political without alienating people today. Um, And I think that, you know, I do think that Part of that might be a natural evolution of American politics, but I will blame right wing media uh, a lot because they have really been over the last 10 years playing up the victimization of American conservatives, whereas being made fun, you know, to the point of where being made fun of by uh, Seth Meyers is an attack on all of us and our values and our integrity, you know, <laughs> and that the, and that's been a strategy for, you know, uh, conservative media is to paint um, any criticism as an as a personal attack and to conflate conservatism with a type of identity as opposed to a set of beliefs. So, yeah, I'm trying to think of like a comedy that really, for lack of a better term, takes a side or 
takes a stance in the only, I mean, even like, even like a broad city, which for those of you who have not watched that show, it's fucking hysterical. Yes, it is. Um, you know, they, they bleep out the word Trump. <laughs> yeah. Which is really funny. Um, but even then it's like, you know, and they make a lot of, they make a lot of commentary about stuff, but it's, that show is so once again, the air of nature, like so into the absurdity zone that like, it's almost, it's hard to even find. I mean, there's commentary in it, but it just, it's hard to see it because it's just episodes, the characters and the episodes are so absurd yeah. and you're such crazy. Like, I mean, it's just like this, the, I mean, it's, I always call it sunny for girls, even though it's not just for girls, but, um, <laughs> the jokes are, you know, oriented that way, but, uh, it doesn't really go out of its way to make it its point. Like, I don't think political comedy is that, please. It's not a thing anymore, really. Well, I mean, I think it is. I mean, it, I guess, I guess, it's, I guess, you know, Saturday night live, but in, in today's world, um, political comedy is very difficult because, you know, and then, and, and you hear, you know, comedians talk about this, like, sometimes you feel like all you need to do to get the laugh is just to read the headline, right? Like it used to be that like in the Bush years, like Stephen Colbert had to generate a character to like get some laughs out of what was going on, like to, you know, you had to work to point out the absurdity of what's going on in our politics today. But in today's political landscape, like, um, you know, uh, it's, 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 it's you, the, what do you do? You just read it and be like, this is pretty fucked up. Right. And kind of funny. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's just a, such a different world. And I think that also, I think that the, the stakes feel higher. Things feel scarier. Maybe, um, it's maybe a little harder to laugh at what's going on because, you know, um, you know, it's kind of hard to laugh at like, oh boy, B- Bush sure was a goofball. What a, you know, what a dunce. And then it's like, yeah, but ISIS though, we, we probably wouldn't have ISIS if it wasn't for Bush. And boy, my dad sure was out of work for five years because of that recession he caused. <sighs> like, I don't know if it's because we're more aware or the stakes are higher or what have you, but like it's getting harder to laugh about <laughs> our politics. Yeah, I mean, I guess I kind of forgot about all the actual, you know, genre political com- comedy like John Oliver or Stephen Colbert or whatever. But I guess cause I don't really watch that kind of stuff because like like you said, I don't really find it like I find it funny, but it's not it's like painful to watch. So maybe 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 to, to really fit in with our context is that these a lot of modern comedies in the traditional sense live in a fantasy world. Yeah. I mean, they, they deal with real, you know, like, you know, a show like Broad City, you're you're dealing with real ideas like two poor girls, not, you know, girls that come from money, but who don't have any money who live in New York City. Right. It's like, well, they just wouldn't live there anymore because they can't afford it. Right. But so it's, it is a fantasy world or, or you know, I don't know, any any show you can look at that kind of stuff where it's so insular and it's so reliant on its own internal characters. And they really try and avoid the hard issues because they don't want to deal with it either. Right. Well, and, and it's, you know, what do we what do we as you know an audience what do we look to comedy for like what's the point of comedy like we want light entertainment that um makes us laugh because it feels good to laugh and generally reaffirms our values and our identity like that's why the family sitcom is so popular because it reaffirms our you know um generally the message of any family sitcom is be yourself and that's a comforting message. And we want that. We need that from time to time. You know, we need, um, we need to see, um, 
Lisa struggle with fitting in and then realize she's happier if she uh, does things her own way. Or, goddamn, I'm using Lisa uh, again, but like the perennial Lisa Homer episode where they have trouble relating and then figure each other out, like it's one every season. Um, but like, because it's about them learning to accept each other for who they are and not change each other. And that's a comforting message. And we want that. Um, Greg, do you think that perhaps if we're going to try and postulate about what the Simpsons could be if it stuck around? Uh huh. Do you think it could be a modern, I, mean, I guess we already have these shows in some ways, but a modern return to like the humanist family sitcom? I mean, I think that, you know, I, I think it's like I said, like, it's not going to do that better than Bob's Burgers does it. Um, you know, that's that's Bob's Burgers wheelhouse. And they do a great show with that premise um, uh, and, and that structure. And can The Simpsons do that anymore? I don't think so. I think that it could maybe do it if they committed to the time jump. Like I was saying about those kind of flash forward episodes where, you know, Bart's in his 30s and if they could reset some of the family dynamics um, and have them, you know, have it be a show about an older family, you know, um, and you could, you know, do because how many like touching family moments can you do when the kids are in school dealing with school problems? How many, you know? Uh, before right. we start repeating ourselves and, and the Simpsons has repeated themselves. I mean, like how many Bart is 10 and has had like 13 different girlfriends. It's <laughs> <laughs> going on. Um, you know, so how many different ways can we tell that story and have the answer be uh, at the end of the day, like she wanted you to change Bart and you don't need to change. Like how many times? Whereas if we do one where again, you know, like let's flash forward where, you know, Bart's divorced and, you know, he's he's trying to get back into the dating scene and, you know, Lisa's marriage to Millhouse is in trouble. And, you know, maybe those are a little bit darker, but um, they open up some new plots. And I don't think there's a, a, a show, a quote unquote family sitcom out there that is about well, maybe modern family. But, you know, yeah, that's where, it's, think yeah, where it's about older people um, dealing with a different set of challenges and, you know, different relationship dynamics, maybe. But I don't know. I just don't. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is like all things, man. I think that no premise can last, no creative premise can last forever in any medium, right? Like, you look at music, what band has, you know, been around for 30 or 40 years that still puts out consistently innovative and compelling music? Like, what, <laughs> what, and what show is like, you know, consistently for that, for that length of time, right? I mean, certainly we can point to examples of things that were cut off too early, right? Like, or when people, decided they needed to switch too early, like a Metallica or a Opeth, maybe. I don't know. Like, you know, things that like, ah, you guys were doing fine. Like we're still okay with this. You didn't need to change your sound. Um, but eventually you, you need to, right. There's a lot of examples of that being done poorly. I'm trying to think of good examples of like a show reinventing itself. But, you know, I, I mean, I, I do think that it's, there is interesting comparisons of like, we do have some very long running. I mean, it said it's always Sunny's on. It's like 11th or 12th season. And granted, they have done things like shortened the seasons and yeah. put more time between them. And these things have to happen as the shows slow down to increase quality. And I think that's always to get to our last episode. I think that also plays a role. I mean, a lot of shows are doing that where towards the end, I think this I think this season of New Girl was eight episodes, 10 episodes, something mm-hmm. like that, which is kind of unusual for like a sitcom in the broader category, not a last track sitcom. But um but yes, I just I don't think anything can last. Greg, nothing can last forever. No, and nothing should. Um, and twenty nine seasons or whatever The Simpsons is at right now is certainly too long. Um, 
especially in comedy, because I do think that, you know, like we say, comedy evolves and shifts and changes. And I don't think The Simpsons tried to grow with its audience. I think The Simpsons tried to shift to find new audiences. And the kind of comedy that those new audiences are looking for is going to be different. And at some point, the structure of The Simpsons is not going to be able to support the new kind of comedy that people are looking for. Even if even if they're really good at staying on top of, you know, what, you know, what's funny today and what are people looking for today, at some point it's going to break because at some point people are going to be like I'm not looking for a family sitcom. And then when right. you do shift and, it and and now it's and now it's Bart as a single bachelor in the city and that's what the Simpsons is now because people want because now this thing has shifted towards, you know, um comedies about, you know, people who are dating like that's the only way you could do it and really change with the times because at some point you're gonna have to change the format you're gonna have to change the premise which at that point we get to a ship of theseus scenario where how many things can you change before it's a totally different thing right and i think that you know like you said and to my earlier point like you've pointed out shows that have taken each era of the simpsons you know its style taken it distilled it and focused on that in a way the simpsons could never would ever focus on nowadays because it would be too fo- too focused, right? Like right. people know what they're going, where they're getting into when they watch an episode of Family Guy or Bob's Burgers or King of the Hill. But The Simpsons, it sunk into just it turned back around into just being a regular, not a regular sitcom in the same way, but it just suffers under its own weight. Yeah, and it and it, it doesn't have a point of view anymore. It doesn't have a point of view. It doesn't have a reason to exist anymore beyond um, what Fox wants of it financially and. Um, I think that's more reason than anything to say bye bye Simpsons. It no, it just it no longer has a reason to exist. All right, so call up Fox, Greg. Tell him get our big. We have like a phone for each. You know that one's been collecting some dust because we've been on the DC one a lot. (laughs) We actually like wore through the rotor on that one. Yeah, Uh, Yeah. but yeah, I mean, I I I agree with you. I think it's time time to die. I think it was probably time to die eh, ten years ago. Yeah, easily, but easily. I mean, especially when you have the same creators making new things that are equally as or like equally as good as it at, at its prime or better like a Futurama or right well that's the thing is that Futurama had a point of view Futurama had something to say um and you'll even notice once in the in like its seventh resurrection it started to run out of gas because again I think it it lost sight of its own point of view and what it wanted to say and it just became gimmick episodes about time travel um and then the plug was rightly pulled but yeah I think the question is what is the Simpsons reason for being um and I don't think it has one anymore yeah so I have a question follow up for you Greg since we've decided you know we've definitely killed the Simpsons what what show most embodies from two perspectives, from the Simpsons of what it was to you growing up and your adult life, and also in the collective remnants of monoculture, what do you think, what comedy do you think is, I mean, obviously we, we, we know what is the most popular from a numbers perspective, but from a cultural perspective, what do you think is the most like ubiquitous that sort of took the Simpsons place after that, after it fell from grace? There might be, since it's been so long, there might be more than one, but. Man, I don't know. I mean, I think for me, the answer is Bob's Burgers, because when I was a kid, I looked at the Simpsons as, you know, like, oh man, Bart, I want to be Bart. And wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be crazy fun if Homer was my dad? We'd have so many wacky adventures. So like the Simpsons was the family I wanted to have kind of. Uh, And I would say again, Bob's Burgers, it's kind of like the family I want to have. You know, when I look at, when I look at the Belcher family, I'm like, that's my model for how I want to raise my family. 
because like I look at it and it's not like about wacky adventures. It's about like, oh man, this is a family full of weirdos who all love each other for being weirdos and don't try to normalize each other. And, you know, like they're very supportive and affirmative of each other in all of their weirdness. Um, uh, and I'm like, I find that kind of inspiring. Um, so that's my personal answer. My who is out there doing what the Simpsons, like, I don't know, because again, like, I don't think anybody wants to be doing what the Simpsons is doing. Um, and like, is there another show where you're going to have a whole generation of people who communicate with each other, with each other online by like distributing memes of the Simpsons? Like, I don't know. I don't know if there's anything. I don't know if anything can be that big again, not because nothing is as good as the Simpsons was, but just because as far as television shows go, I don't think there's anything that can command the public consciousness in such a way. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that the, like you said, the disintegration or the splintering of collective media consciousness and how we all communicate. I mean, I think it's funny because like the the being able to communicate via GIF and image slash meme, like it, it's like a threshold for that, right? Like depending on, I guess, which corner of the internet you're on. But it is really show you like what sort of bubbles to the top and what makes the cut. To it. What What is memeable, I guess, is like... <laughs> a certain threshold but but the thing is like i don't see a lot of simpsons memes that memes anymore you know yeah you don't talk to the same people i talk to on facebook all the time yeah trust I me i see a like, lot of i see a lot of and i i feel like it's almost the way that you know people in like mark twain times used to like quote scripture at each other or like throw shakespeare <laughs> yeah. lines at each other like just as a right. like like oh this is a this is a stand-in for like what i want to say like you know like like it will be a frame of the Simpsons along with a, you know, with a lo- along with a subtitle. It's like, cause that little scene perfectly encapsulates this idea I'm trying to express. Um, like one of the flashback episodes, uh, there's a scene where, you know, um, it's a flashback episode as the Simpsons do where they go back and like, you know, Homer and, Mar- Homer and Marge are kids at summer camp and Moe's a camp cancel camp counselor and he's on the phone and he gets a prank phone call and but and then that scene ends and he turns to the camera and he says and that's the origin of that which is you know like a a commentary on all these flashback episodes and like whenever you know i see a flashback episode on something else that just like gratuitously calls that out i'm like and that's the origin of that because it so perfectly encapsulates the absurdity of the way tv does that and it's like you know it's my shorthand now and there's a lot of people like me i know you don't see them but i mean i wonder if like the infinity war memes that we're seeing today um like is that going to be a lasting thing? And is Avengers and is Infinity War a big enough part of the cultural consciousness? I mean, as big as anything can be today, but, you know, that it will become the shorthand for generation and they're going to keep using it. Like I'm quoting 20 year old Simpsons episodes of my friends because they get it. Yeah, I don't think so. I think that the amount of stuff that we consume, because that's the other part of this too, is like part of the monoculture was that not only was it a diversity of like, different things but just like the quantity of what you consumed it like you said like i mean i watch the simpsons every day for probably 10 years i'm not gonna watch infinity war every day for 10 years true you know what i mean like so that's what makes it lasting but i think that that time is in general is dead because you know shay and her friends will quote the office to each other all the time or used to even you know that's a good example like i didn't like the office so i don't quote it i don't like it you know i get i get some of the memes but fine, but I can do the Parks and Rec thing or I can do the New Girl thing or, you know, Archer or Rick and Morty, right? But 
next year or six months later or two months later, I'm kind of on the next thing and then I'm going to quote that and the whole internet's going to do it. And then yeah, it's on to the next thing. Huh. So yeah, I think that we're past that point where like things have that permanence. Huh? I mean, individuals and groups of people, I think will have, you know, that permanence, like Shay and I will always be able to reference some of our favorite episodes to parks and rec toward to each other because it's got a good place in our heart and it's what our go-to sort of like feel good show is. And we just, you know, like sit on the couch and not watching something currently just throw it on the TV. Like you've talked about, uh, although we're not much of like a habit on in the background while doing things. It's not usually our style, but, um, I just think that collectively we just don't, aren't going to be able to do that anymore. I think you might be right. I think that era might be behind us, which is another thing of that. Like, you know, there's this, Oh, the Simpsons have broken these records and it's, it's, you know, saying like, and probably no one will ever break it because that's not the way the industry works anymore. And also something would need to be good enough to be on the air for 30 years. And when is that going to happen again? Like when are, you know, when the star is going to align that this show is going to get it right so many times and, you know, by the skin of its teeth, make it past cancellation. And, you know, like we've said before with some of these things, like Hank Azaria does like 70% of the voices on that show. You know, the fact that Hank Azaria you know, in the 20 so years that The Simpsons has been on that he never got hit by a bus, right? Or decided he didn't want to work on the show anymore. Like that sort of thing could have killed The Simpsons at some point during during its run. And we'd be having a very different conversation right now. So the chance that something else is going to have that kind of luck of just like, not only were we popular enough to stay going, but we'd never met with any kind of catastrophe that derailed us. Like, is it ever going to happen again? No. But also, like you say, like just the media landscape has changed and the way people consume these things and, you know, carry these things forward has changed. And it moves so much faster now that, you know, there's not going to be another steamed hams that becomes mm-hmm. a meme. Yeah. Or rum hams. I don't know. Rum ham is... Come on, steamed hams is... is That's my bit. point, though. You know what I mean? Like, I, my friends wouldn't get the steamed hams reference. Mm. I do, but... You gotta, they you, don't get the rum ham You gotta get some better friends. <laughs> uh, okay, I mean, that's fair. I mean, that's fair. <laughs> but um, there's no arguing with that. But yeah, no, I, I think that it's just a it's, a... it's a it's a changing time, and I think that it's a relic. I do wonder... I mean, one of the merits of an animated show is that, I mean, those characters don't age. <laughs> and you can replace the voice at, voice actors and nobody will know the diddly difference. See, that's, right. a, that's a direct quote from The Simpsons about what we're talking about, because that's the way my whole brain is wired now. Why don't you understand this? <sighs> <sighs> Sorry, Greg. Well, I, speaking of things that have gone on too long. <laughs> yeah, this. <laughs> so... As much we as went down some weird rabbit holes, so I told I warned you up ahead, like things are gonna get weird. <laughs> We're talking about well, this. I've been having a lot of a lot of comedy thoughts in my head lately because I've been watching a lot of them and having some crystallization. So it's gonna come out here because I wasn't didn't know where else to stick them. So that's what we're here for. So I think we've got to, we've got to put, we've, we, we've got to put this one to bed and I've got to put myself to bed. <laughs> Indeed. But Hey, uh, the next time we talk, we will have both seen Deadpool. Yes. And because possibly solo. Well, yeah. And because I have movie pass and thus no excuse not to see solo, we will probably have seen solo. So, um, we'll be able to talk do about you do a double, a double movie review. Session I don't know, or man. Something? Let's see how the week goes. <laughs> <laughs> I might that's have another. Fair, I might fair. have another thirty-year-old TV show I want to talk about for two hours. <laughs> so let me tell you about this show called Frasier. Oh God, no! <laughs> I mean, I did like Fra- Frasier is one of the few sitcoms that like adult sitcoms I liked when I was Dude, a kid. I but anyway, still love Frasier. Yeah. 
anyway so uh all right buddy well this was a good chat and uh i hope you have a good week you too